Good evening. Thanks for coming out. I'd like to start just with a short story about a Portuguese explorer, a guy called Bartholomew Diaz, who in 1488 sailed his ship south along the southwestern coast of Africa. Coming to where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Indian Ocean, he rounded a cape on a stormy sea, and his ship was battered by the fierce storm and threatened to go to pieces. Narrowly surviving the shipwreck, he called the place the Cape of Storms. But his king, King John II of Portugal, had other ideas, and he later changed the name of that cape to what we now know it to be called, the Cape of Good Hope. Because when he looked at that cape, he didn't see danger. He saw the jewel of India, and he saw the promise of the first known sea route from west to east. The cape remained a stormy place, and it would certainly claim its share of shipwrecks over the years, but King John saw that it was something else. The king of Portugal knew what this discovery was worth, and this knowledge changed his perspective. The Cape of Storms was also truly the Cape of Good Hope. And so tonight, as we come to the last sermon in our series on Colossians, we face a similar challenge to our perspective. The storm may be fierce, but we have reason for hope. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, as we've been told over the last couple of weeks, they were being told again and again that they needed more. They needed a greater emotional or spiritual experience. They needed to be better at following rules and regulations. They needed more discipline. And in response to all of these claims of needing more, Paul gives them Jesus. That's it. He's all you need. In Colossians, Paul says, you are dead to the world and alive in Christ. You have Jesus. You're free from sin and death You've no need of fear. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is all. Jesus has got it. You're safe, and you're secure under the work of God. So no emotional or spiritual experience, no harsh discipline is going to bring you closer to God. Only Jesus. That's it. He was the perfect sacrifice. So you don't need a little bit more, and you don't need to add anything. Jesus is sufficient. Your life as it says in chapter 3, is now hidden with Christ in God. Last week, David Farrell used the illustration of a sheet of paper put in the book of the Bible. And when that sheet of paper is put in the book, it's hidden. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. You're perfect when God looks at you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's got you. And so if this is true, then the storms ahead take on a different cast. If Jesus really is enough, if he's everything, if he's in us the hope of glory, what then do we have to fear? You see, in Jesus, we're offered a new way of living, an entirely new perspective on every situation in life. Our faith is often weak, and the task ahead is daunting, but Jesus is sufficient in any and every situation we face. Do you believe that? because this is life-changing stuff. And I think it's the central theme of the book of Colossians that Jesus is sufficient, he's enough. Last week, David Farrell took us through chapter three where Paul lays out what this means for how we live personally um, and in our families. 
And so tonight we come to chapter four, the last chapter where Paul turns his attention to mission. If you have a Bible, let's read it together. Um, Colossians chapter four, we'll start at verse two, and I'll just read straight through to the end of the book. So Colossians chapter four, verse two, all the way down to 18. It says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. <clears throat> So in this last chapter of Colossians, Paul looks out. He turns from family to mission. He turns from personal godliness to how we can interact with those who don't know Christ. He gives some really practical advice about how we as believers can be living gospel-centered lives. And so as we dive into this, I need you to remember that Paul is building upon the central theme of Jesus being enough. Because if he is, if Jesus is enough, it'll impact how we pray, how we do mission, the boldness with which we share the gospel. Because if Jesus is sufficient, then the gospel is sufficient. It is good news for everyone, and it is nothing to be ashamed of. So in these verses, Paul encourages the believers to live a prayer-filled, gospel-centered life, not wasting, but using the time that they have for what really matters. And I believe this is kind of the central message of this chapter. We're called to live prayer-filled, gospel-centered lives, making the best use of the time. This is important stuff. If you've ever been on a sports team, it's like those final moments before the match starts. You've trained hard. You've seen the opposition warming up, and the coach is giving his final comments. This is the game plan. And so in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4, Paul's game plan calls the believers to do two major things. Number one, pray, and number two, live wisely. Pray and live wisely. 
And so I'd like to split our time tonight into two parts, focusing first on Paul's call to prayer and second on his call to live wisely. And we'll look at some good examples of people he mentions in verses 7 to 18 as we go. So let's look first at prayer. Paul calls the believers to pray. Starting in verse 2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Just to be clear, this mystery is explained in chapter 2, verse 27. Okay? It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ is in us. And if you'd like a refresher, go back, I think it was three weeks ago, and listen to Jim Crooks talk about that. Okay? So Paul says, pray, for, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for a door to be opened for the word. He's praying, he's asking them to pray for the spread of the gospel. I've heard a preacher describe prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie. So I'd like you to imagine a soldier in the thick of a firefight. They're pushing forward, and they come upon an enemy strong point. Bunkers, trenches, machine gun nests. And they can't break through. It's too fortified. So what do they do? Well, they radio in air support to blow that obstacle out of the way. And our prayers should be the same. Targeted requests for God to provide breakthrough in the spread of the gospel. Unfortunately, we too often use prayer more like an intercom over which to call the butler for a drink or another pillow. I remember recently praying at 5 a.m. in the morning that God would send Elliot back to sleep. It was too early for him to be awake, and I was tired. Perhaps similar prayers like, I pray there's no traffic so I'm not late. I pray the weather is good tomorrow. I pray I find a really good deal. All sound familiar. Now, God certainly cares about all of the aspects of our lives, but too often our prayers focus solely on our own comfort and our own convenience. And when we only pray like this, we remove much of prayer's power to see God work mightily and to inspire and refresh our faith. When we take up the struggle to pray for the spread of the gospel, then mission becomes the catalyst for our prayers. And suddenly our prayers have renewed energy and renewed purpose. Lord, I don't know what I'm going to say to him. Please speak through me now. Lord, please open a door for those missionaries. Please break down those barriers. Lord, thank you for working in so-and-so's life. Thank you for saving them. Mission inspires prayer. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 3. He says, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He isn't praying for release. He's in prison, but the coordinates he gives are to pray for an open door for the word. Surely being in prison is Cape of Storms territory. But no, Paul instead sees a reason for hope and an opportunity to tell others about Jesus in his situation. And so we must pray for the spread of the gospel, both here in Belfast and abroad. Pray for those in our own lives that we're seeking to bring to Jesus. It's a hard thing to do to share the gospel, and we need the help. It's daunting, but we have confidence in Jesus and therefore confidence in his word. 
We've already been encouraged in previous weeks in this series to commit to praying for one or two full-time gospel workers. Let's call in those targeted strikes, asking for God to blow open doors of opportunity for the gospel. And when we do this, our own prayer lives will be energized as we strive and struggle to see God working. You'll see that Paul asks the believers to pray in three ways, if you look at verse two with me. Verse two, it says that they should pray steadfastly, they should pray watchfully, and they should pray with thanksgiving. So let's take a few minutes to look at each of these. Pray steadfastly, pray watchfully, and pray with thanksgiving. So to pray steadfastly, or to pray persistently, we need to know what to pray for. So very practically, we need to take an interest in what's going on. Paul's a great example of someone who knows the value of targeted prayer. That's why in verse 7, he says he's sending Tychicus with this letter to tell the Colossians all about him, all about his activities. He says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and he may encourage your hearts. Likewise, those in gospel ministry should provide an account of their work so that we as the body can support them in prayer. When we know what's going on, we know what to pray for. I know it's a shameless plug, office hat on, but the Echoes magazine is a great resource for this. It's inspiring to read in this magazine about some of what God is doing around the world, and we can be part of his work through our prayers. Speak to me if you'd like to subscribe. Let's pray not just for work abroad, but for our ministries here at Crescent, for iCafe, for the neighborhood chaplains, for the carol services over the next few weeks. We can start praying steadfastly now for breakthrough. Secondly, we must pray watchfully. We must be alert and vigilant in our prayers. The image that comes to my mind when I think of uh, praying watchfully is like a sentry on night duty. They're focused, they're alert, they're not allowing their mind to wander or to drift. Practically then, if we commit to pray, we must guard our times of prayer. Too often, we allot our least focused time of day to prayer, either at night when we're tired or in the morning when we've stayed up too late the night before. The battle for watchfulness in prayer is often won the night before. We must be rested enough to have the focus and clarity of mind needed to pray. And in this sense, prayer is a commitment and it can be a struggle. And in verse 12, Paul mentions Epaphras, who did just this. He's, he was another leader in the church at Colossae, and Paul uh, said that he was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Watchful prayer, then, is consistent, and it's vigilant, something which Epaphras exemplifies. Finally, then, we should be thankful in prayer. This is a good reminder from Paul about in whose hands all of our efforts rest. Paul has been championing Jesus, who by his death made peace by the blood of his cross. We must remember that we're in a struggle that's already been won. We know that in Jesus we have victory, that he's reconciled us to God, and that now our lives are hidden with him in God. Paul spoke in chapter one about how the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, and we can rejoice that it is still doing that today. And so, in our struggles, we can thank God that He's in control. The ultimate victory is His, and we're just playing our part in that. Our prayers then become filled with thankfulness. 
And we can aid this. We can make a practice of this, a habit of this. So when we pray, let's be intentional in thanking God. Write down your answered prayers. Tell others about them. Take time to be thankful. Because when we remind ourselves of what God has done, we know Him to be faithful in a real and personal way. And then we redouble our efforts in prayer because we see that it works. So to review, Paul has urged the Colossians to pray steadfastly, watchfully, and to pray with thankfulness. So let's look now at Paul's second instruction, which is to live wisely in verses five and six. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. These verses, they speak about our day-to-day witness with the people around us who aren't Christians. And they could be colleagues, friends, family. To them, we should walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time. We don't know how much time we have. Could be years, could be decades, maybe not. What Paul is saying is that every moment from when we wake, we have a unique opportunity to serve God through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. With each hour, with each moment, we can either redeem it or we can miss it. And this is true in the big things and the small things, from leading someone to Christ to how you respond to those small annoyances. If we can cultivate this attitude, this mindset of making the best use of the time, then when opportunities arise and doors are opened, we will be ready. You can hear something of Paul's urgency if you look at verse 17 when he he leaves this message for Archippus, a fellow church leader. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. He's urging Archippus on. There's work to be done, hard, meaningful, glorious work, and God calls each of us to the same. Let's make the best use of the time. So how then do we walk in wisdom? What does it mean? How can we be wise in how we live, how we take hold of opportunities. Life's not often black and white, and we find ourselves in difficult situations with difficult decisions to make. So how do we know God's will in the day-to-day? Well, look back at chapter three. Set your minds on things that are above. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Like chapter three, the Bible is full of wisdom about growing in God. And we can grow in discerning God's will by being steeped in the Bible and immersed in regular prayer. When we know more of God's word, then we know more of who he is. And we know better what he would have us do. God doesn't leave us alone in this either. Chapter two says that Christ is in us. Christ, the son of God, is in us. So take heart. Jesus won't abandon you in your moment of need as you walk and work with him. In verse six, Paul explains this further. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is how we are to speak. In various places in the Bible, salt is used as a metaphor because of its preserving nature and because of its flavor. I think in this instance, Paul is speaking about the flavor that salt adds, the taste that it brings, how it makes things delicious. Our speech should be delicious so that when we speak with others, we whet their appetite. We make their mouth water for what we have. We make much of Jesus. 
We can only do that when our mouths are watering first. George Muller said, the great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The, the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. This is what we should be looking to do when we study our Bibles. Find reasons to be filled with happiness. Perhaps sometime this week, you could sit down and reread Colossians. We've been through it now over the last couple of weeks. Just try and read it in, in one sitting. There's so much in this book to rejoice over. There's hope laid up for you in heaven. Jesus has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, and he's now reconciled you to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Jesus canceled your record of debt that stood against you and nailed it to the cross. He has hidden your life with Christ in God. Jesus did all of this. Read the promises of God. Know them to be true. Rest in the peace that he gives. Rejoice in the inheritance that you have. Make your soul happy in God. Then your speech will be salty and people will notice. And who knows how God will use you. I was speaking with a friend last week about uh, pivotal moments in our lives. And he told me about the moment that he uh, met his first Christian friend in university. He was in a lecture uh, and this guy walked in 15 minutes late and sat down beside him. They introduced themselves. I don't know if they were listening to the lecture or not, but they got talking. And long story short, the Lord uh, used this guy to bring my friend to Christ. And when my friend was telling me this story, something he said struck me. He said, I knew from the moment I met him that he was a Christian. I can't say what it was, maybe his goodness or something, but I knew. That's pretty cool. There's opportunities all around us to share Christ, to show the love of God, to be distinct. And God can use the most surprising of situations, even if we turn up late. So we need to prepare ourselves. Let's be steeped in his word. Let's be faithful in prayer and happy in God. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, to conclude, we're called to live prayer-filled, gospel-centered lives, making the best use of the time. Be encouraged. If your prayer life, like mine, is often inconsistent or dry or, or dull, know that part of our calling is to join with God's great mission in prayer. Take on the struggle of praying for the coming of God's kingdom on earth. Pray steadfastly, pray watchfully and with thanksgiving. Get informed and pray faithfully for God to blow away obstacles to the gospel as he advances his kingdom here on earth. Use mission, use reaching out to others in your own life as a catalyst for your prayers as you rely on God to bring those you love to know him. And in reaching out, maybe you feel like you don't know what to say, you're, you're daunted, you feel like you're at a dead end. Know that Jesus is enough. He loves you. He's done all that's required to make you perfect. You're safe with him. And he has a real, purposeful, exciting job for you to do. And he's with you each step of the way. 
so we can be confident. We can go out. We can make much of Jesus. We can whet others' appetite for Him, and they'll notice you need nothing more and nothing less than Jesus. Jesus is sufficient for the task at hand and for the storms ahead.